Okay, let's go ahead and get started. So welcome everyone to today's webinar, Healing in the Time of COVID, the Connection Between Spirituality, Burnout, and Modern Medicine. My name is Michael Skaggs. I'm Director of Programs for the Chaplaincy Innovation Lab, and we're very happy to have you with us today. Um, let me just say a few words on behalf of the lab before we get started, and then we'll get to the presentation. Uh, like most of our events, this is being recorded and live streamed. So if you need to leave early or if you miss a point or whatever, don't worry, you will get a link to this recording here in the next couple of days. You can go back and watch it as much as you want. You can get caught up. And we post it to our YouTube channel, the website, lots of ways to watch it. When you get that link in your email, there's a little bitty survey there in that email as well. Please fill that out. It's very quick. It takes maybe a minute and a half to do. It just tells us what you liked, what you maybe thought we could do better. It helps us plan for future events. So with that, let me introduce today's speakers. Dr. Wayne Jonas is the author of How Healing Works, Get Well and Stay Well Using Your Hidden Power to Heal. He is also a practicing family physician, a widely published scientific investigator, and an expert in whole person healing. He is the executive director of the Samueli Foundation Integrative Health Programs and a retired lieutenant colonel in the Medical Corps of the U.S. Army. I know we probably have some military chaplains here as well. Uh, Reverend Maba Jones is an interfaith chaplain who serves as the chaplain and director of religious and spiritual life at Goucher College. She is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ with an MDiv from Yale Divinity and a certificate in education, leadership, and ministry. And I learned this just as we were talking beforehand. She was also on the founding board of AXEL, the Association for Chaplaincy and Spiritual Life in Higher Education. So welcome, both of you. Wayne, I will turn it to you. Thank you very much, Michael. I, I really appreciate uh, being here and uh, that introduction uh, and uh, appreciate being able to do this with my daughter, uh, who is a reverend and a chaplain. Uh, let me tell you why, actually, I asked uh, maybe to join us here. Uh, when Wendy first uh, talked to me and, and asked if I would uh, speak uh, at uh, this webinar for the uh, Innovation Lab, uh, the discussion was really about uh, whole person care and healing. Uh, and um, I thought, well, you know, sure, I'll just give my standard talk that I normally give to medical folks and, and that type of thing. And then I looked at uh, the people that attend, and there appear to be a lot of chaplains here. <laughs> and I realized that I had never spoken to a group of chaplains about this topic ever. Uh, and so uh, I really had uh, no idea about this. And so I happen to know a chaplain, is my daughter. I'll introduce herself in a minute. Uh, and uh, my father, her grandfather, was also a chaplain. Uh, and so uh, I decided in looking at this that uh, what would be most useful is if I sort of do what I normally do in terms of bringing the science into this area uh, and talking about the science and how uh, 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 there is a science underlying many of the practices that chaplains are engaged in in those areas. Uh, and a lot of it isn't necessarily done by chaplains, but it's still there and it's very relevant to these areas. But I knew nothing about the application of this in chaplaincy. And so what you're going to see today uh, is uh, sort of a, a sequence in which I show you a little bit about the science and why this is important uh, from a healthcare medical perspective. And then Maybe is going to actually introduce uh, some examples from chaplaincy uh, in those areas. So, um, so I'm going to start just by sharing my slides and then also introducing a little bit more about uh, sort of uh, who we are and why you know, we work in this particular area. 
The title of this is Whole Person Care During COVID. So that's a little bit different than what was advertised, but I'll show you why, and you will see why in a minute. So uh, uh, Michael introduced us. Thank you very much, Michael. Let me just say that I currently oversee uh, the health uh, funding, and this is how Wendy and I got connected, uh, from a foundation on the West Coast that is working with other foundations uh, to really integrate more of the healthcare and uh, spiritual components of care. However, we also do a lot of work and are interested in doing a lot of work in social justice and interfaith work, et cetera. I don't oversee any of that, uh, but that's the, that's the work that many chaplains get involved in. So I'll stop there and, uh, and let uh, um, uh, maybe introduce herself. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me to be part of this. Uh, it's very exciting. I'm grateful to be here among my colleagues and uh, to be talking about this important work between the intersection of healing and chaplaincy. Um, as Michael said, I uh, am a longtime chaplain. I have served both in institutions of higher education, but I've also did a CPE residency at Yale New Haven Hospital and um, completed that rigorous program. And so I have a deep passion as well for hospital chaplaincy and for the work that all chaplains do. Um, and of course, my grandfather uh, actually was a military chaplain, served in the army. And so we have a deep family history of this work, but also of the intersection between how we can bring uh, the work of chaplaincy into the mainstream consciousness and into the understanding of that intersection between both uh, pastoral care and healing of individuals, but also of communities. And so that's something that we'll talk about today. Um, previous to my work at Goucher, I actually just started here at Goucher College as the chaplain. I um, most recently was a chaplain at Johns Hopkins University, and so I've done some work in um, those conversations as well. So it's great to be here. That's okay. Let me just a second. Gonna... There. Okay. See those slides okay? Can you? <laughs> let, me, let me get right into the why here. Uh, the bottom line is that even before COVID, and we'll talk a little bit about COVID, but I don't want to dwell on that. Uh, even before COVID, our healthcare system was broken, and it is broken. And COVID actually illustrated how broken it is. And here's some of the examples and challenges that healthcare uh, is. First of all, in the United States, we are first in spending by far over any country. And if by measuring health outcomes, uh, for example, with the WHO's, uh, WHO, World Health Organization scales, we're at the best 37th compared to other countries and way behind many other wealthy countries. By 2025, at the current inflation rate, we'll be spending 20% of our GNP, which is unsustainable. This growth and cost is creating health disparities and is growing uh, the problem in health disparities, decreasing equity in health availability, of who has healthcare and who can access it. There's widespread dissatisfaction. Anybody who has been and encountered, a had a complex illness and encountered the healthcare system can attest to that. It doesn't work very well for most people. And for those who are working in healthcare, there is growing burnout. Up to 25% since COVID have left because they just can't work in the system anymore. Now, during COVID, this has gotten much worse. Here's a graph on the right-hand side that illustrates the amount of money that we spend in healthcare uh, per capita uh, and the graphed against the life expectancy. 
against multiple countries in, in the world. And uh, this shows that the United States spends almost double of any other country in the world, and yet its life expectancy is somewhere around Czechoslovakia uh, or Portugal that spends significantly less and aren't even considered uh, rich countries. During COVID, there has been a drop of an entire year, over a year, in life expectancy in our nation in a single year. This is an unprecedented impact. And that drop has been three to four times for people in color, color just illustrating uh, the, uh, the lack of equity built into our system and how COVID has exacerbated that. So before COVID and after COVID, we have a problem, Houston. The reason for this is also well known. We know that medical treatment, healthcare as it's currently delivered, even if there was universal healthcare or medical care access for everybody in the country, which I know many people are fighting for, it would actually only improve the health if it's currently delivered the way it's delivered to about 15 to 20% of health. And that's because most of health comes from outside what we do right now. It comes from behavioral and the lifestyle aspects, which link in with the social and emotional components. And it comes from the social and economic impact, the so-called social determinants of health uh, that make up practically the entire other 80% of health. And therefore, if we want a healthcare system that produces health, we have to widen to a whole person perspective, get out of this little black area in the top and facilitate uh, linkage up with the determinants of health in these other uh, two areas. To do this, we need a different model. Modern medicine is based on a mechanical mindset and it gives us tremendous knowledge about parts of the person. It works extremely well in acute care thinking. It can save your life if you're having a heart attack. It can fix your uh, broken bones. It can replace your knee. It can remove a tumor. It separates your body into small parts, fixes that, sends you on your way. But chronic care does not work this way. Chronic disease does not work this way. That separation is often counterproductive. What we need for chronic care is an ecological mindset in which whole people are addressed, all of them, not just parts of them and communities, when those connections are made between the body, the behavior and the lifestyle, the social and the emotional, and what we'll talk about today, the spiritual and the mental, as a core aspect of who, of what who, who human beings are uh, in those areas. So to take a whole person approach in healthcare requires that we address at least these four dimensions of health. And at the center of that is uh, the spiritual and the mental component, or some would say the existential component. Uh, it explores what matters to the person, not just what's the matter with them. Uh, why do they get up in the morning? What gives them joy in life? What provides them with purpose and meaning? Uh, and it aligns then uh, those uh, behavioral changes and other kinds of medical treatments with those underlying determinants of health that I've just illustrated. To do this, we have to cultivate the, a transcendence of this separation. Uh, that is occurring and that occurs currently in our materialistic and healthcare delivery system I've just illustrated to you, which is not working. 
And there's three ways that I'd like to illustrate some science behind this. And maybe we'll illustrate some ways in which chaplains facilitate this process. Uh, one is in the area of personal development, learning and growing, going beyond our own narrow ego. The second is the power of the mind and the mindset in those areas and how that then gets impacted within the presence or the collective power between individuals. Again, my job is here is to show you a bit of the science of each of these. Uh, and then we'll talk about challenge. Let's start with the first one, the power of personal development. This is one of my favorite quotes from Daniel Borstein, author of a book called The Discoverers. Uh, and his quote is, the greatest obstacle to discovery is not ignorance, but the illusion of knowledge. He was talking about discovery in the world, uh, but I think this quote applies equally well to self-discovery for going on what your ego thinks it knows, going beyond what your th ego thinks it knows uh, and to discover itself. My grandfather uh, actually had a, um, a more succinct way of putting it. He said, when you're green, you're growing. And when you're ripe, you're rotting. <laughs> so always be green, always get involved in self-discovery. The process of self-discovery involves engaging in rituals that help move you through this personal transcendence and connectivity. And I illustrate on the left-hand side a number of approaches that are used for self-discovery. And you can see uh, many of those, uh, I think, are related to what chaplains do. Some of these are what um, uh, medical folks do. But they have to be put into rituals. And it is those rituals that move us from the physical component to the emotional, to the mental capacity, and finally to the spiritual capacity uh, like uh, Abraham Maslow showed in his hierarchy of needs. And it's these rituals that then become the healing behaviors that produce this. Let me illustrate how this happens in the brain with neurobiology of a type of mind-body practice called mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement, one of those self-discovery components. And this is a meditative practice that was originally derived from spiritual practice of Buddhism in the East and then secularized and now is becoming widespread in psychology in mindfulness. But this is a special adaption of that for those who uh, have chronic pain and opioid and other kinds of addictions. And uh, in this study uh, done at the University of Arizona, they measured the brain connections that were going on when individuals engaged in this mindfulness-oriented activity compared to sort of the normal support group that you see in Alcoholics and Narcotics Anonymous and that type of thing uh, uh, in these areas. And what they found is that in the mindfulness practice, in that particular ritual, there was a significant increase in connections between, especially in the midline theta called the FMT coherence between the left and the right-hand side of the brain. In other words, there were connections there that were shooting in synchrony. And in fact, this is the very pattern that has been shown to be related to a sense of self-transcendence. When individuals had this neurological pattern, they said they lost their sense of ego and they gained a sense of connection to other people. And this was actually the most powerful signal that these individuals uh, had if they were going to recover then from their addiction. Now, other studies of spiritual experiences have shown that very similar brain patterns occur when individuals have a, a, a spiritual engagement, when they lose their sense of isolated self 
and feel a connection uh, to the universe or to God. Again, it's this same front to temporal uh, coherence that seems to be occurring in those practices uh, versus other practices. There's a lot of talk now of psychedelic drugs. And I just heard from Michael, you're gonna be having a, a feature on this and look at psychedelic drugs in those areas. Interestingly enough, the neuroscience of uh, using these kinds of medications such as psilocybin shows that it does it increases the connection almost non-specifically across the brain, as you can see here in this illustration. And so it's not gonna necessarily produce the sense of self-transcendence unless it's guided to that by appropriate psychological and spiritual uh, support. Uh, so stay tuned on this research. Now in medicine, we embed these therapeutic rituals, but we hide them. We hide them with the treatment. And it is often the therapeutic ritual that produces the effect when we think the treatment is is. Here's an example of that with post-operative pain with an opioid, a very powerful painkiller. And in this study, they took uh, part of the, half of the people uh, and they, hiked, they hooked them up to a pump in which they got uh, a pain medication without their knowledge. So the pump injected it uh, without their knowledge and they were ranking their pain scales on one to 10, which you can see in the blue every five minutes uh, on those areas. Uh, then half the people got a ritual where the nurse comes in, she holds up the little vial, she pulls up the narcotic, she injects it into the IV and she says, you're gonna start feeling better now, Mr. Smith. And when she did that, you can see easily from these five minute pain components that the pain immediately starts going down. Whereas the random injection without the ritual produced very little effect. In fact, they determined about 80 up to 90% of the pain effect, pain uh, relieving effect occurred from the ritual, not the drug. Here's another ritual that uh, we have developed uh, in medicine uh, very elaborately. And this is called surgery. You walk in and you interact with the nurses, with the surgeons, with the anesthesiologists, et cetera. Uh, they take you into a spe special ritual room, put you on an altar, uh, give you anesthesia, which makes you uh, like you're dead, and then they resurrect you. Uh, it, in fact, has all the hallmarks of a really good ritual. And in the studies, at least for functional problems, you know, not studies like removing a tumor or fixing a knee, but where you're looking at chronic pain, for example, if you go through this ritual and then don't actually do the surgery, don't do what the surgeons think is producing the effect, the effect is 80% as effective as the actual surgery. And in fact, you can't statistically tell the difference. The vast majority of this statistically occurs from the ritual of surgery and not from what you're doing in the surgery itself. But because we believe it's the surgery, we have in fact buried uh, the ritual in the therapeutic uh, component. Great. So this brings us to the power of spiritual rituals, right? And as we have heard, the science is there to demonstrate how um, how important ritual itself is to the human experience and to the understanding of a connection to something bigger than ourselves and to one another. And so what does that look like in our society? Well, 
um, in many ways, it can be effective and looks, um, it can be very powerful in spiritual communities or religious congregations. Um, and so this is important, right? Uh, religions are, have a, um, a powerful um, process of creating ritual, right? There's many um, uh, religious traditions uh, create ritual around uh, life's big moments, around birth, death, right, marriage, uh, those types of things. And so we see, uh, we see ritual uh, experienced in, in religious communities quite frequently. One of my favorite definitions of a sacrament uh, is from St. Augustine, uh, uh, that a sacrament is an outward visible sign of an inward invisible grace, right? So the idea being that the ritual itself isn't creating the grace or creating the experience, but that there is something already present. There is something invisible that um, the, the ritual, the sacrament is pointing to and making visible in that experience. And, and so um, this is very important and very powerful. However, I wanna point out that in, in my line of work and probably in a lot of yours, um, you know, chaplaincy actually exists outside religious context, right? And you can go to the next slide. Chaplaincy, uh, or my definition of chaplaincy is, um, you know, chaplains support the ethical and spiritual lives of people who are in the midst of transitions, right? So this can be on the battlefield, in prisons, in hospitals, or in schools. And some of the people in those uh, places or in those uh, periods of their life may have a religious background, but they may not, as we know, right? Many people are, um, are confronted with life changes and they're uh, interested in suddenly talking about those experiences with someone um, where they otherwise may not have done. Um, in higher education, we know that uh, increasingly more and more students and young people are identifying as nuns, right? N-O-N-E-S, uh, or spiritual but not religious. Um, in fact, a Pew Research study recently done has uh, found that over 50% of people under 35 are now identifying this way without a spiritual or religious affiliation. And so that doesn't mean that they're not spiritual people. <laughs> that doesn't mean that, um, that some people aren't, right? But that doesn't mean that um, people don't also experience and want to engage in ritual and moments and opportunities for connection. And so in chaplaincy, we seek to find those uh, people and support our communities in a way that meets them where they are. So one example of this um, that I, I think was profound uh, in, in terms of my line of work uh, happened a couple of years ago. Uh, as you recall, there was uh, some terrible shootings uh, that existed both uh, here in the United States at a synagogue in Pittsburgh uh, in October of uh, 2018. And then uh, in that same academic year in March, there was a shooting from at a mosque in New Zealand that had global impacts um, on the prevalence of Islamophobia. And, um, you know, what do we do with that kind of event? What do we, how do we help support the grief and the anger and the fear that our um, communities are experiencing in, in the face of something like that? And so we had conversations and uh, amongst our students, we um, met with the, the students impacted and, and we spoke about the need to make visible the pain and as well as the um, support for each other in an interfaith capacity. 
And um, one of the things that we ended up doing was uh, after the, the mosque shooting, we uh, created a vigil, um, spoke some words and allowed folks to share their experiences. And then, and then uh, by request from our Muslim Student Association, they wished to pray uh, on our main campus quad right something that would be a normal ritual to be done um, their evening prayers is often done in private but um, the idea was that if they could pray outwardly and be witnessed and supported um, by their fellow students our uh, jewish student association was was present to bear witness and um, protect them in in this uh, opportunity for to engage in ritual um, that that would be a, a way to heal from this terrible act of violence. And so, so just as an example, even in a multi-faith context, even outside of a religious context, chaplains are there to help support um, such, at, at such times and, and to really encourage um, the community connection that uh, speaks to this process of healing. Okay. So, even in the uh, the midst of ritual, the the making it visible is a key aspect of what the science uh, says happens. Let me illustrate sort of two other short areas from the power of the mind uh, and from the how that's applied in healing presence. Um, the basic understanding within neuroscience now is that the brain reacts. Similarly, whether the experience is imagined or real, just think about this for a minute. And you see this happening all the time. Professional athletes, for example, will go over their physical activity and practice over and over again in their head. And the studies show when they do that, they actually physically perform better than those who don't do that. Now, how does this happen? Uh, it's actually uh, quite well worked out and it's even imaged uh, within MRI scans and, uh, and, and in other models. Uh, when you image and visualize something, the neuron interprets that as a real life event. It then generates impulses and it begins to increase the connections and even grow the nerves and the neural pathways uh, into a pattern as if you had actually done it. And this all occurs without performing any physical activity. This literally can be seen on brain scans after uh, you know, six to eight weeks of engaging in a uh, mental exercise. I like to call it mental exercise, not stress reduction uh, of a variety of types, whether it's biofeedback, whether it's imagery, whether it's the kind of mindfulness we just talked about. You can actually see those frontal parts of the brain that I showed you previously get bigger. It's like growing your brain muscle in those areas. And then those areas actually then function better later on in those areas. This then results in a shift in the mindset. And we learn this socially and we learn this individually. And it's now shown that the mindset into which you go into trauma and stress actually is one of the largest factors that produces how you come out of it. In other words, how you think about it uh, is often and uh, through the expectation and the intention is how it actually occurs. Let me illustrate this with uh, one study uh, done uh, at Stanford University by uh, Aliyah Crum, uh, who has now looked at this in multiple, multiple ways. Uh, but I love this study. It's called Mind Over Milkshakes. 
And what she did is that she created two types of milkshakes, one called the Indulge Shake, uh, with all the calories and fat and sugar that you uh, deserve, right? So drink the Indulge Shake and you will be satisfied. The second shake was called the Census Shake, uh, low calorie, low fat, uh, low sugar, uh, the sensible type of thing to do. Uh, and uh, then she had people drink it and she measured how quickly they got full, they were satiated, uh, but she did more than that. She actually measured the hormone that produces satiation, grenaline, it's called. And so before and after drinking the shake, she drew the drew blood in both of these groups. And she found that those who had drunk, drunk in the indulge shake had three times the level of grenaline rise in their blood, three times than in the sense of shake. Yeah, but here's the crux. The shakes were exactly the same. Same amount of calories, same amount of fat, same amount of sugar. The growth in the, the, the rise in the hormone was entirely produced by the mindset and how they went into and what they thought they were doing in those areas. And this applies in multiple, multiple other areas. Here's an example of, of that. And uh, actually, uh, on the right-hand side of this is a graph. Uh, this is one of my favorite studies done in the 80s by KB Thomas. And he took over 500 people who walked into the doctor's office in England that had conditions that, were, uh, that didn't have a specific treatment. There was no particular antibiotic that was gonna be affected or they didn't need a surgery or chemotherapy. It's called functional problems. And by the way, that's over 60% of what walks into the doctor's office in those areas. Uh, and then he gave them something uh, with a positive message or a negative message. And this was across multiple clinics. It wasn't just his clinic that did this. The positive message was something like, well, I think you'll be okay. I don't think this is serious. Why don't you take this? And if you have any more problems, you know, call me and we'll make sure it gets better. The negative message was, well, I... Not sure what this is. I don't know if it'll get better, uh, but you know you can try this. And uh, you know if you need to call me, give me a call. Okay. Took the exact same amount of time, but completely different mindsets being sh shifted in those areas. Four weeks later, he had people call up these patients and, in a blind manner, find out if their condition had gone away and if, if they needed to come back in and get it addressed. And those who had gotten the positive message, over sixty percent, it had resolved. Uh, whereas those who had gotten the negative consultation, it was less than 40% from that simple change in their hope and their expectation in those areas. That was highly clinically and highly statistically significant. This research has now been documented uh, extensively and shown in the book on the, on the left-hand side that you need a ratio of about three to one to ingrain in your brain, <laughs> if you will, this new mindset of hope to actually produce these kinds of, uh, of effects. This comes through the interaction and the signals that I call the power of presence. Here's one of my favorite stories. A four-year-old boy sat, saw a next door neighbor who was an elderly gentleman and had lost his wife. Upon seeing him cry, the little boy went to his yard and climbed on his lap and sat there. When his mother asked what he had said to the neighbor, the little boy said, nothing, I just helped him cry. This is the power of presence. And it is, in fact, an act of healing in itself. Um, here's some extensive research that's been done on this area. And here's one of the top research in this area. Uh, James Pennebaker from the University of Texas. He and many others have looked 
at the effect of simply talking to another person without them doing anything, or in some cases, simply writing about something in their presence that is deeply traumatic or meaningful for you, this therapeutic writing. Uh, and a simple ep episode of having somebody witness that or allow that to happen uh, uh, can produce profound effects. Here's an example published in the, one of the top American journals, a Journal of the American Medical Association, in which a single effect of this type of writing, uh, randomized, he they randomized people with uh, asthma and lung function problems or rheumatoid arthritis uh, with a single uh, expression of confession, so to speak, of something they've not told anybody or is deeply meaningful compared to just writing about the weather or what you had to eat, something more superficial. And they found after four months that those with asthma had significant improvements in their lung function measured by objective lung tests. And those with rheumatoid arthritis had significant reductions in their pain, the main problem in rheumatoid arthritis. This is the effect of presence. So as chaplains, right, uh, we know this. We, we've often heard our, um, our work as being referred to as a ministry of presence, right? Um, some of you may have seen this uh, quote or heard it uh, preached back to you in your training. I certainly did. Uh, don't just do something, stand there, right? As opposed to the, the old adage, don't just stand there, do something. Um, that just by being there, we are actually making a difference. And the research shows this and backs this up. And so um, in, in chaplaincy, you know, this, this becomes a very, um, especially in, in healthcare, I think I'll, I'll speak to that. This becomes a, a really important um, part of participating, participating in the healing process. And so, um, and so one of the questions that I often get as a chaplain is, what's the difference between a chaplain and a social worker, right? What is it that you do versus um, somebody else who maybe is providing similar social services uh, in, in a hospital setting? And um, a colleague of mine gave a really powerful definition that I'd like to share with you. Uh, she said that, you know, a social worker is, is so important and they do essential work. And this is no disrespect to social workers. I hope there are some social workers on this call. Um, but often what social workers view as their task is to uh, provide resources and a sense of hope to people who are in difficult circumstances. And what my colleague said was uh, the work of the chaplain is to be there when there is no hope. Right. And so to, so to be a presence, to be a person who is willing to sit with people at the end of their life. Uh, to offer space for a life review, to offer space for this kind of opening up uh, and listening. Um, often, you know, we find that uh, the people that we counsel do, do not necessarily have anyone else to turn to who maybe could be, um, be a source of comfort in, in a time of, of crisis or of difficulty or life transition. I know in my work, uh, I'm often confronted with 
um, people who have been raised in a um, religious upbringing that was challenging to their identities. And they need to seek out someone who understands and respects both the background and the family that they were raised in, but also can help them struggle with the deconstruction and the cognitive dissonance perhaps as they grapple with um, who they are and who they're meant to be. And so, um, you know, this is this is the work of chaplaincy, and I believe um, this is the work of of presence that we are that we are providing. And so, um, in some ways, you know, whether it is in uh, the that difficult setting around grief or loss or or life transitions or celebration, um, being a presence to to folks uh, who might not otherwise have that opportunity to see those connections between themselves and something, something deeper, um, is really profound and has profound impacts on their well-being. So the final area we'd like to talk about is the area of spirituality and healing. So here's a question for you all, and I, we're not going to set this up as a poll question. Uh, so you can just put your answers into the chat. What percent of patients in the hospital or with a serious chronic illness would like to discuss spiritual issues or in some cases see a chaplain? Is it 2%, 10%, 30%, 50%, or 70%? Give you a few minutes to, uh, to put in your answers. I love the power of positivity here. We're seeing a lot of 70%. Oh, there's 110, 150. <laughs> 30 to 50, you don't get the answer right unless you pick one. <laughs> 70, lots of, lots of 70%, yeah, yeah, 10%, etc. yeah. Super. Depends on the and country part of the demographic. Yeah, that's probably exactly right and how it's phrased, right? How it's phrased. Okay, well, this is happening more and more. It used to never happen. When I trained in medical school, nobody had ever asked, do you wanna to talk to a chaplain or you have a spiritual issue going on uh, here? Uh, but it, it's happening more and more. And uh, in fact, the answer from the latest surveys is show that 70% or more. In fact, the vast majority of people want, who have a serious illness, would like to talk about, you know, what matters to them in life, and uh, you know, why do they have this? And when they say why, they may not mean what's the biological explanation for it, okay? But what's the explanation? What's the existential reason for it? And that requires somebody besides a doctor to have that conversation in those areas. So um, I'd like to to show you some of the research on what I call spiritual reality. If we truly believe that that core center of an individual, the mental and the spiritual part is real, then we cannot afford to ignore it at its pearl. And if that part involves connectivity to others constantly, universally, and connectivity in some way to the universe or to God, then a person actually has made up of all those parts. If we say the person is made up of the mind, body, and spirit, uh, and we only look at the body, then in this graph of person one and person two, they're close together, but person three is far away, right? But on the spiritual level, at the center of this, if in fact connectivity is real, then person one, two, and three are not separate, but are universally connected. 
In fact, there is extensive research now looking at this area of, of spiritual reality. And I'll just uh, show you some of the publications that we've been involved in. There have been many others. And these are books and these are special issues looking at things like the laying on of hands and healing, healing touch, uh, Qigong and distant healing, prayer and intentionality. And these were done in a variety of places with a variety of populations, like at Walter Reed or PTSD and Marines, uh, or even the effects on blood in the physical world in those areas. Let me just illustrate a couple of the types of research that comes out of this. Here's some research that we did at Walter Reed years ago, measuring the mechanism of laying on of hands. So this was immune cells that are in this uh, little graphic with uh, hands around them in a test tube. And we had a healer who was an expert laying on of hands person, a spiritual healer who came in and exposed these cells uh, to his healing touch or his laying on of hands. By the way, there was no touch involved in this, okay? It's distant. And then we had a control group of somebody, uh, of an individual that came up and simply showed that. And if you look at the, the uh, video on the down below that, these are cells in that tube that are lighting up when their calcium and ATP, which is the energy of the cells, gets activated. And when the heater was in fact doing laying on of hands through meditative and energy components, infrared electricity uh, or infrared waves increased off of his hands and you would see a significant rise in the number of uh, cells that were getting activated and getting more energy in those areas compared to the control group. So this is an under one of perhaps the underlying mechanisms of the laying on of hands. Here's an example of what I illustrated before, that if we're all connected, then we ought to be able to measure it, right? Instantly and continually and even at a distance. This is a, one of a series of studies in which they measured the EEG, the electroencephalogram of distant individuals. In some cases, they were in the next room. In some cases, they were miles away. And when they focused on each other, when their intention turned towards each other, their EEGs would begin to synchronize. And you could calculate that. And the graph at the bottom actually shows the rise in synchronization of individuals when they paid attention to each other compared to when they were just randomly component. Notice that uh, the far graph bar is those who are lovers or, in, or intimate in some way, partners. Uh, and they got significant bump, but so did strangers that began to do this, demonstrating that there was a continual connection that could be brought out or could be highlighted uh, by our own intention and expectation and mindset. So chaplains are already doing this, right? Um, and there's a number of ways that chaplains are involved in spiritual healing. And part of what we're trying to demonstrate today is to show you how the work that you're already doing is, um, has, been, has been demonstrated in science and proven to be, um, to be effective in, in supporting people. And so getting this message out to the people that perhaps you work for um, or work with would be, is, is part of the, the goal in, 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 in making and utilizing these, um, these spiritual approaches uh, in the healing process.
And so things like prayer, meditation, mind-body practices, these are, these are all well-known. Um, laying on of hands, as was just demonstrated, is, um, uh, has actually demonstrated scientific um, healing properties uh, that we can measure. Trauma-informed yoga is one example of something that I'm uh, involved in that um, brings the powerful uh, spiritual practice of yoga to uh, a broader uh, group of people who maybe have experienced some level of trauma or are otherwise not comfortable attending a, an exercise-based uh, yoga class or practice, um, but can, can be incorporated in a therapeutic model as part of the healing journey. And so, there's a lot of talk today about self-care. It's a hot topic, particularly in mental health care and uh, in, in uh, general conversations around this experience of the post-pandemic times, which we're not quite in yet, but how the pandemic has impacted all of our self-care routines or lack thereof and how we need to help support and focus on ourselves. And burnout amongst chaplains is you know, similarly high and challenging um, particularly in times of crisis, which we are all living in, right, as, a, uh, as part of um, the last 21 months or so. And so, you know, my focus and my hope is that one of the things that um, we can do to support ourselves and also to support the, the communities we serve is to shift a little bit this, this mindset of the emphasis on self-care, on um, you know, engaging in your own time and your own uh, pace in individual practices of uh, ritual or uh, prayer meditation that for some people may be inaccessible or otherwise unfamiliar right? Um, to just sort of throw out to people, oh, well, you know, do this for yourself, um, isn't necessarily a, uh, an intervention that, um, that will stick or that people will be able to maintain. And so community care, uh, by contrast, is finding ways and opportunities for people to engage in this level of um, spiritual practices and in, in community and with one another. And my suggestion, um, you know, to you is, is to do this also for yourself, right? So um, I know that we're part of this talk is around burnout. And, you know, we want to make sure that you're engaging in things like the Chaplaincy Innovation Lab. I'm also a member of the um, ACPE Association for um, Clinical Pastoral Educators, which offers a number of um, incredible resources for chaplains. Um, I've also, as mentioned, uh, sit on the board for the Association for Chaplaincy and Spiritual Life and Higher Education. And we've instituted um, monthly check-ins with chaplains who are often operating uh, solo on their campuses or in their environments. And so, we want to help um, provide those opportunities and spaces for us to come together as a community, not to, you know, say anything, that there's anything wrong with self-care, but in order to broaden how we know these experiences operate, which is in, in uh, relationships with one another, we, it would be beneficial for us to be highlighting those things that we're already doing um, in, in um, communities of practice and, and, and with each other and with those communities that we serve. So this brings us back to you know, our definition of ritual, um, that 
we are not creating something new here, right? But that we are pointing to something that is already there. This experience of interconnectedness is something we know exists. Um, if you yourself are a chaplain, it, it's probably something that you've been seeking your entire life. And so um, ways in which we can highlight this and, and access it for, for ourselves and for the people that um, we work with uh, is going to be more and more essential, uh, particularly now. And so I'd like to wind up by just pointing you to uh, some ways in which uh, our foundation is attempting to integrate uh, these components of a whole person and bring it into uh, routine delivery of healthcare. We do this through a tool and a set of tools called the Hope Note Toolkit that stands for Healing Oriented Practices and Environments. And it embeds all four of these dimensions of an, indiv of an individual into the clinical encounter starting with uh, the question, the existential, the spiritual and mental question, if you will, of what matters to you in life, and then aligning that with the underlying determinants of healing that we just talked about. Uh, this toolkit involve, uh, has a, a questionnaire that patients can use, to, a whole set of uh, tools that clinicians can use. Uh, they come out with a personalized health plan that's not just about your body, <laughs> but is also, uh, in some cases, about uh, your social environment uh, and your mental environment and your soul, uh, as well as related uh, resources uh, for referral, for integration with community, with chaplains, with mental health uh, folks in those areas. So for those that are interested in, in this area, you can go to my website. There, it's listed there on the bottom. Uh, these are downloadable uh, freely in those areas. And uh, really the goal of all of this is, uh, is to really help provide more whole person care through the integration of uh, the spiritual care components with the physical care components. And uh, maybe and I have written a couple articles on that and a chapter, the one on the left is a faith health collaboration uh, a seminar that was held uh, with a commentary uh, held by the National Academy of Medicine for population health. And the one on the right shows uh, the textbook of natural medicine in which we've written a chapter that illustrates a number of the connections between the science and the spiritual practices that we've just highlighted here. So uh, I hope that's helpful for you uh, all and was of interest to you and we'll uh, open it up and stop share, uh, sharing and uh, ask you all to ask your questions and also maybe talk about how you better integrate whole person healing in your daily lives. Thank you very much. Thank you both. That was that was wonderful and so wide ranging. My my own list of questions is very long, so I I will try to keep them out of the way. I do want to sort of wrap a number of questions up into one because I think it'll sort of get at what a number of people are are asking. I'm not a, a, a medical researcher by any means. I am wondering what happens when people are aware that. This is the question that you are pursuing with their with this intervention. You know, if, if people were aware of some of these shakes are not actually sensi shakes, they are full fat, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and all of that sort of thing. The reason I ask that is that a number of folks have asked about, well, what how can we apply some of these principles to the, the issues of burnout with medical staff? Because we have so many people here who are working in healthcare institutions. Obviously. Staff are involved in some of these uh, scenarios that you mentioned, like the nurse coming in and making a big deal about we're going to administer the painkiller now and so on and so forth. 
for people that are aware of what is going on in this type of scenario, how can these principles be applied to them in a way that that is sort of still effective, I think is the right way to put it. Well, I'll, I'll give you my answer and maybe I can add to that. Uh, this is a question from the ego, right? You think because you're aware of it, therefore it's gonna control it, right? <laughs> Actually, most of the research I showed you here is unconscious. It occurs invisibly as maybe illustrated in some of the, their definitions of spiritual ritual. Uh, and there's extensive research on this where they've actually told a person they're going to get a placebo, okay? This is an inert substance, we're gonna give it to you, but if you go through the ritual, you'll still get better. And guess what? The vast majority of the time it works just as well, whether wow. they were aware of it or not. Okay, so it's a myth that in fact it's your consciousness, what you're thinking up here in your ego mind, that's actually producing it rather than the collective and ritual mind that we just discussed. That's really interesting. Um, and, and specifically for the person asking about burnout, what that says to me is that providing some sort of acknowledgement that this is a problem that we know you are experiencing, providing some sort of moment to acknowledge that. Um, and, and maybe some kind of space to process it. Just the fact that that exists is an effective intervention, no matter what the actual service or, or the, the details of the ritual or whatever. Um, doing something is, is actually quite effective uh, in, in ways that maybe um, might not be so, so obvious right, right off the bat. Uh, a few folks have asked, can we get the, the, the slides and all the information? The answer is yes, of course. Uh, we'll include that in the email that you get. Uh, there will also be a link to uh, Dr. Jonas's website where a lot of this material is, is gathered there um, directly. So anything that you have heard about here, you will have access to later on. Don't worry about that. So let me, let me mention just one thing about burnout. I think it's a, it's a key issue. Uh, the question you just had uh, illustrated that it's not about covering things up, it's about making them more visible, right? <laughs> it's actually opening things out. Uh, the, but burnout is, is a key issue, and I cannot talk about this in the chaplaincy. I don't know about it in those areas. But in the healthcare area, there's big struggles around burnout. So I worked in the military for many years, still see patients in the military, and there's a very different distinction between PTSD, psychological issue, and moral injury. And I noticed one of the questions was about how is, uh, how is burnout a spiritual ailment? Well, I wouldn't use the term ailment in that particular area, uh, but uh, very often among soldiers and service members, we're treating them as if they have a psychological issue, but what they have is that they have a problem with their own perception of themselves and what they did or what they didn't do or the fact that they survived or something like that. That is a, a moral issue. It's the spiritual issue. Uh, and that will never get resolved with psychotropic drugs or, or even psychotherapy for the most part uh, in those areas. But they overlap in terms of how they manifest with the reduced energy, with apathy, with anger, uh, with frustration in those areas. And so I think there's a, there is a crossover clearly between the spiritual and the mental, but uh, there's also clearly a difference. I'll just add as well, um, speaking specifically to chaplaincy and burnout, you know, depending on your context and um, timing of how the pandemic struck you in uh, the place where you serve, um, that, that, ministry of presence that I spoke about, the ability to just be there and be in the room, um, for many of us was not available. It was a mm -hmm. Zoom call, it was a tablet, it was a uh, video chat, 
of praying or being with people virtually uh, while they died. And for some, we were the only people, uh, including their family members who were, were able to be there in any capacity. And, you know, for me, that speaks to a bit that moral injury, right? That we couldn't be there. We couldn't be present to do the work that we know would have helped um, really the, in a, in a, I mean, it's sad really, right? Because a global pandemic where there is no cure for an illness and not yet a vaccine, the only people that can be there and be present are those who are, are experienced with witnessing death in the face of what we cannot cure. And so the fact that many of us, I think, had been excluded from that um, can, can contribute, or even those who had were there and, and saw this type of death that we could do nothing about over and over and over again, right? That's a grief and a pain and uh, um, an injury to our society that we, I believe, will be processing for a long time. Mm. So have, have some grace with yourself. You know, I am I'm very confident, even not seeing it necessarily explicitly in chat, but I'm very confident that a lot of the chaplains here today are saying, you know what, this all makes sense. I get it. I, you know, th this is, in, in some cases, it's putting words and numbers and signs behind something that's been intuited for a long time. But I'm imagining a lot of them saying, how do I convince the institutions that I am working in that this is actually the case? So the question for you, Wayne, is as, as a medical doctor, what would you want to hear from a chaplain, a spiritual care department? How do you start that conversation? Because I, I know that for a lot of chaplains, that's the struggle. They have the resources, they have the information, they don't know how to get started. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a very complex question. I'll give you a very short answer, <laughs> which is not the complete answer, because it's very similar to the challenges that we find in healthcare teams whether they involve chaplains or not, that are truly trying to do the kind of whole person care that we've just talked about, okay? Uh, you know, how do you get traction in a system that pays for taking care of the body, okay? Uh, if the system only pays for taking care of the body and doesn't give you uh, the resources or the education or the time to take care of mental health issues, then we get what we have. We don't have mental health taken care of, and now there's a pandemic. And if, literally of mental health issues caused by the pandemic it was already an epidemic uh, that is getting worse. Opioids went over 100,000 deaths, the diseases of despair, as they call them, uh, this year. And so how do you do that? Well, some of it is mindset change. People just have to see it. Some of it is science, but a lot of it is money. You have to demonstrate that the particular way you're delivering your integrated or whole person care is improving outcomes, and saving the, the system some money in those areas. And sometimes even that doesn't work. <laughs> well, I realized that we are coming up, we're at the top of the hour now. That really seemed to fly by. Uh, thank you both very much for this. A number of folks said, can we please get a copy of this presentation immediately? The answer is yes. Uh, as soon as we can basically get it back out to you, we will certainly do that. Uh, do visit drwaynejonas.com. All the material that was discussed here will be available there. We will get you the slides as well. Thank you both for your time uh, and, your, and your wisdom and your expertise. This has been absolutely fantastic. I hope that we can stay in touch. And thank you all for joining us. Uh, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you. Thank bye -bye. you so much.